John chapter 14, verse 25, is what we're going to read here in just a moment. In the last section of John chapter 14, if you were with us last week or you heard that sermon, you remember that Jesus talked about these two incredibly important concepts of love and obedience, two very powerful words producing two very different reactions inside of the human heart. What we discovered as Jesus taught about them that those two things, love and obedience, find their natural soil when they grow together in our discipleship to Jesus Christ. As we follow him, we learn to love him and we learn to obey him. In this passage of scripture, Jesus adds one more very powerful concept to our discipleship, and it is this idea of peace. The promise of peace, if we just reflect on that just for a moment or two, the promise of peace is often a promise of a state of being that we might be at peace or often a promise of circumstances. Things will get settled, things will get fixed, and on the other side of that, then we'll finally have some measure of peace. We wonder sometimes, does this particular person, do they have the power to bring about the kind of peace that we need or that I want? Or does a program or an ideology, if we finally enact it, if we finally put it in place, if we finally fund it as much as it needs to be funded, will finally settle everything and give us peace? More often than not, we think about peace as freedom from conflict or tension or confusion or difficulty. We think of peace as things finally going our way. Or we think of peace now, especially in the vocabulary of our culture, as a kind of justice that finally fixes the injustice that we see around us. So mostly, we tend to reflect on peace in terms of, if only this happens, then we'll have peace. If this happens, then finally everything will be settled. But is this the kind of peace that we will ever really find in this life? Is this the kind of peace we will finally actually have on this earth? More important for us, is this the kind of peace that is talked about in Scripture? So this passage of Scripture is about a handful of things. It's about the promise of Christ's kind of peace to his disciples, to those who love him, to those who obey him. And it is also about this promise that Christ has introduced to his disciples in this passage that the knowledge of God will maybe be made possible to us because of the presence of the Holy Spirit. So Christ, again, is going to promise the Holy Spirit to us and what the Holy Spirit will do among us. And in that context, Jesus then says, and I will give you my kind of peace. It's not the kind of peace the world offers or the world gives, but it's my kind of peace. So in this passage of Scripture, here's what we're going to read. First of all, the Holy Spirit will teach us everything we need to know. Now, that's quite a claim. That's an interesting thought, but that's exactly what Jesus says in this passage. The Holy Spirit will teach us everything we need to know. So what does this mean? What are we being taught by the Holy Spirit? What does Christ intend by this? In answering these questions in this passage actually helps us find more direction and courage and comfort in our discipleship to Jesus Christ in this world that is so often full of confusion and turmoil instead of peace. The Holy Spirit will teach us what we need to know. 
And then secondly, Jesus will give us his kind of peace. He clarifies it. I'm going to give you my peace, not like the world gives or promises, but it is my kind of peace. It's not the world's vision of peace or the world's promises of peace. It is a peace in a beautiful passage of Scripture, as the Apostle Paul puts it. It's a peace that passes all understanding. It's a peace that goes beyond my ability to manufacture it in my circumstances. It is the peace of Jesus Christ. So let's read this passage of Scripture. Let's hear what Jesus has to say to his disciples again on this very important night as Jesus makes them ready for the cross. So we're in John chapter 14, verse 25. This part of his teaching goes like this. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise and let us go from here. So Jesus says, these things I keep telling you, I keep teaching you, especially on this night. While I am with you, I want you to hear what I have to say because I'm not going to be with you for much longer. But don't worry, as Christ put it in the previous passage, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. Not only will I come back, but the Father is sending the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity, to be with you. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who is sent to be with those who love and who obey Jesus Christ, the helper, the comforter, the advocate. Christ made this promise earlier in John chapter 14, verses 15 and 16. Jesus says this, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, the Holy Spirit, to be with you forever. So the Spirit of God is with the disciple of Jesus Christ and will never leave you. It's an incredible promise. The helper. In the Greek, it's literally advocate. In some of your other translations, it's translated as comforter. It is the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit amongst the people of God. Jesus calls him again in this passage of Scripture, and we'll come back to this concept in chapter 16 as Jesus talks more about the Holy Spirit, that he is the Spirit of truth. Remember, part of the work of the Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit works among the people of God, it is to lead us into the truth about Jesus Christ. This is the witness that the Holy Spirit bears amongst the people of God. So Jesus says this in verse 26. He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So this is what the Holy Spirit does. And remember, this is not 
This is not an academic thought, an ethereal thought that, you know, somewhere out there in the future, this sort of thing is going to happen. The Holy Spirit has descended, is here amongst his church now. So this is what the Holy Spirit is doing inside of the hearts of those who love and obey Jesus Christ. So this is tangible. This is real. This is the path that Christ has given us. So Jesus says he will teach you all things. What is meant by that? What is Christ communicating to his disciples and to you and to me? Here's what Jesus is saying. The Spirit of God teaches us everything we need for discipleship. Everything we need to follow Jesus Christ. This is the context. This is what Jesus is doing with his disciples on this night. This is the meaning of this phrase, all things. The Holy Spirit will teach the disciple of Jesus Christ everything they need to know about following Jesus Christ. So the Holy Spirit did not come to teach us quantum physics. The Holy Spirit did not come to teach us ancient Aztec sociology. And as much as we pray for it, the Holy Spirit did not come to teach us the perfect golf swing, okay? So the Holy Spirit didn't come to teach us those things, but all things pertaining to life with Jesus Christ. See, Jesus is preparing his disciples on this night to carry on after he returns to the Father. And this becomes the empowerment of the Holy Spirit in the lives of those who love and obey Jesus. So the Spirit of God is teaching us everything we need for discipleship. Jesus adds a second thought to that. He'll teach us all things and bring to remembrance all that I have said to you. So the second thought is this. The Spirit of God reminds us of what Jesus taught us. So when the Spirit of God speaks and moves, when the Spirit of God is at work inside of corporate worship, when the Spirit of God is at work inside of your time with Scripture and prayer, be it individually or in pairs or small groups or in large congregations, when the Spirit of God is at work, what he is doing is he is reminding his people of what Jesus taught us. So everything, friends, this is so important, everything that is truly of the Spirit will remind us of Jesus. It will be in line, alignment with Jesus and with the Word of God. It will lead us back to the things that Jesus actually taught. It will lead us back to the wisdom of Scripture, the things that God has given to us from Genesis to Revelation. This is the role of the Holy Spirit. So that then means, and this is important for us as well, every spiritual claim that does not do this is not from God and should be rejected. Any spiritual claim that goes beyond the word of God, any spiritual claim that contradicts the word of God, any teacher who persists in contradicting the word of God and blaming it on the Holy Spirit should be rejected. Go back and watch that again. It's on YouTube forever now. But it's true. Whether it be other religions or false teaching that comes from behind the pulpits of churches, if it does not lead us somehow to Jesus, we can just let it go. Now, we're a Pentecostal church. We belong to a Pentecostal denomination. 
So part of what this means is that not only do we believe that the Holy Spirit is amongst his church now at work, which is a Christian teaching for 2,000 years now, but we also believe that the gifts of the Spirit are at work inside of the church. So the Holy Spirit is constantly in special kinds of ways and in different kinds of ways speaking to his people about the truth of Jesus Christ, leading us in discipleship. And we use terms like speaking in tongues and words of knowledge and prophecy. But this is what we mean, that when the Spirit of God is at work in those special kinds of gifts, what they do is they lead us back to Jesus Christ. And if you've ever had those moments or experiences, be it in the speaking in tongues and interpretation or a word of knowledge or a word of prophecy, and it does what the Spirit of God intends, it hits you like a ton of bricks because it's right and because it's true. If it's false, it should give us that pause in our spirit and we just sort of let it go. So often when people complain about Pentecostal theology, they build a kind of straw man that when we say we believe in prophecy and the gifts of the Spirit, we're adding to Scripture all the time. That is not what we teach or what we believe. It's not what we teach or what we believe. The Spirit of God is at work amongst His church now in various ways, leading us back to Jesus Christ. So here, I think, is a good way of understanding these two things that Jesus says about the Holy Spirit in that sentence. The Spirit of God leads disciples into truth and into wisdom. The truth of the Word of God, the truth of what Jesus has said. And then wisdom is the living out of the truth of God. It's not just our knowledge. It's not just memorization. It's not just I know the Ten Commandments or I know the golden rule. It's I've learned how to live this out now. He's teaching us everything we need to know about discipleship. So reminding us of the truths that we learn in Christ and in the Word of God. And the Holy Spirit leads us into the wisdom that we need to live it out inside of our lives. And you and I must think about this very specifically. A relationship that you have with the Word of God, guided by the Holy Spirit and encouraged and guardrailed by the church of Jesus Christ, is intended to provide you with what you need to lead your life. So the Holy Spirit is at work inside of Phil to teach Phil what it means to live like Jesus Christ in his marriage, in his family, in his job, with his thoughts, with his intentions, with his finances, with his gifts. And so it is with every one of us. This is what the Spirit of God is doing. He will teach you everything you need to know for discipleship in your context, the place that Jesus has placed you. And he's gonna constantly remind you of what Jesus is taught. Remember again that if you want one chapter in the New Testament about the Holy Spirit, you want to spend some time with Romans chapter 8. So here's part of what that passage says, Romans 8, Romans 8, verses 13 and 14. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you're getting rid of one life and you're putting on another one, if you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. 
getting rid of one life and now living according to the Spirit of God. And this is what Jesus describes that like. He's teaching us about discipleship and about the things of Jesus Christ. So in this context, I'm teaching you this because I'm here physically with you. I won't be for very long. And so the Father is going to give you the Holy Spirit, the helper, the comforter, the advocate to lead you into everything that you need to know. Jesus now tells his disciples. So I am giving you peace. My kind of peace. Not the world's kind of peace. I'm giving you peace. And I need you to not be troubled and to not be afraid. The disciples are going to need this kind of reassurance over the next few days. They're going to watch Jesus arrested. They're going to watch him, watch him be placed before a mock trial, declared guilty, though he is the only innocent man. He's going to be beaten. He's going to be flogged. He's going to be crucified. He's going to die. He's going to be taken down from that cross. He's going to be put inside of a tomb. A stone is going to be rolled, and it's going to be sealed, and a guard is going to be placed upon that tomb. The disciples need to hear this. The disciples need to know that Jesus is going to give them this. So they need it now. And they're going to need it as they become the foundation of the early church. You turn the page, you get to the beginning of the book of Acts, they're going to need this kind of peace. Not as the world gives, Jesus says. The world is a word, an idea that John the Gospel writer uses a lot. The New Testament uses a lot, but John the Gospel writer uses it specifically for a lot of reasons. The term world that John uses is this general term to describe human beings and human systems without Jesus Christ, without the will of God. So human beings and human systems lost in their sin. So we get things like, for God so loved the world that he gave his only, his one and only son. He so loves human beings lost in their sin and human systems lost in their sin because of human beings that God does all of this. And then we get these contrasts. Okay, the world wants to give you a certain kind of peace, but that's not what you want. That's not what you need. I'm giving you something else. Not only will the world not give the disciples peace, the world, something that is said against Christ, is actually going to try to take peace away from the disciples of Jesus Christ. These are the disciples who are going to face persecution almost as soon as Jesus is gone. But these are also the disciples who are then going to take the gospel around the rest of the world. The world tries to stop them. The world tries to silence them. The world tries to remove their peace and replace it with fear and anxiety. But as a result, the gospel spreads around the world. You see how this works. The world does one thing, but the peace and power of Christ does something else entirely. So Jesus reminds them, don't let your hearts be troubled. I don't want fearful disciples. This is how this part of the teaching began. John chapter 14, verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Don't let them be afraid. Listen, if I go and prepare a place for you, I'm coming again to bring you back so that where I am, you will be with me forever. Wow, what a place to put peace. 
What a place to find peace and comfort. Friends, peace for the Christian, the follower of Jesus Christ, is described later on in the New Testament as one of the fruit of the Spirit. If the Holy Spirit is at work inside of my life, one of the things that will result is Christ's kind of peace. Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. For the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and on it goes. The fruit, the result of the Holy Spirit teaching me everything I need to know to follow Jesus today, reminding me of everything that Jesus has taught is going to result in peace. I mean, we need to step back for a second and sort of think, well, this isn't just, you know, a teaching the Sunday morning sermon. We got to this passage of Scripture, so here it is. We need to let something like this sink in. Jesus really intends for your heart and mind to be at peace. He really intends it. He really has the power to do that inside of us. Living with Jesus, knowing him more, living with the Spirit of God is intended to give a disciple peace. Not just the disciples who already have it pretty good. Well, they've got it all together. I think their retirement's in order. They've got a job that they like. Their family is going well. So, of course, they have peace. It's not just for disciples who already have it pretty good, whatever you think that is. But it's also for the disciples who in six weeks' time will face persecution, imprisonment, and death. These guys. So to these people, Jesus knows what's going to happen. Second page of the book of Acts. They're called before the Pharisees. They're threatened with prison. A few chapters later, they begin to die for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Jesus says to them, the world will hate you. I'm giving you peace. So, is this kind of peace dependent upon my circumstances? The answer is no. It's deeper than my circumstances. Will the peace of Jesus Christ easily coexist with fear or anxiety or the need to control? The peace of Jesus Christ is intended to replace all of those things. I'm not telling you because Pastor Phil has found this. You call or text me at the wrong moment, and you'll discover how much Pastor Phil needs the peace of Jesus Christ. <laughs> or I just won't answer. It's just one of those two is going to happen. <laughs> but I'm listening to a God who really exists, who really loves you and me, who really did give you and me the Holy Spirit and has promised you and me here and now, whatever you face, his peace. Let's listen to a little bit more about what Jesus says to these disciples in this context before we come back to this peace, what it means and what it doesn't mean. Jesus tells his disciples, I'm going away. And in fact, he says, you should have been happy for me. Because when I said I'm going away, I'm going back to my Father. 
The Father who sent me, the Father who's greater than I. It's a way of Jesus talking about the greatness of their Father God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm going back to him. You should have rejoiced with me that I was going back. But what it has done is it's created these conflicting responses inside of the disciples. Philip said, just show us the Father. It would be enough for us. Judas says, what does all of this really mean? And Jesus is trying to explain all of this to these disciples. But he tells them again that the fulfillment of all of these things is intended to deepen and strengthen their belief in Jesus Christ. I'm returning to the Father. The Holy Spirit is coming. You have access to my, my peace. And all of this is happening so that, as he says in this passage, you may believe. And there's that note that keeps ringing throughout John's gospel. This is written so that you might believe. Jesus says, believe in me and you will have eternal life. I do this so that you might know who I really am. All of this is happening so that you and I may believe in Jesus Christ. And Jesus says something really interesting here at the end of the passage. I will no longer much talk with you for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. But I do as the Father has commanded me. He's going to the cross, he's going to rise from the dead, and he's going to ascend into heaven. So the world may know that I, that I love the Father. The ruler of this world is coming. It's, it's a fascinating context for Jesus to say something like this. But the New Testament does talk about our enemy, talks about Satan as the ruler of this world. And it's an interesting thing to grab a hold of. It's an important thing for followers of Jesus Christ to understand what this means and how this works. Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. And you and I, if we are followers of Jesus Christ, we are members of that kingdom. And we're learning how to live in the kingdom of Jesus Christ while we are physically in this world that is ruled by Satan and his kingdoms and his world. Is there any real debate as to the radical sin and brokenness that is in this world? In fact, sometimes we believe we have a very hard time seeing the kingdom of God because of how messy the kingdom of this world is. This is the power of our enemy among us. Remember, the ruler of this world, that word for John means humans and human systems ruled by sin apart from Jesus Christ. So it just is the case that Satan is powerfully at work in our world today. He has been a deceiver and a destroyer from the very beginning. When he deceives Eve and Adam, it was intended to deceive and destroy, to separate human beings from their God, their Father. It was intended to do that, and he still does that. When the enemy's at work, he intends to deceive and to destroy and to devour. The apostle Peter writes to a group of young Christians in the city of Rome. And he says there's in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, and if you can imagine what it was like to be a Christian in early Rome, we have those images in our heads. Peter reminds them this, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And when the enemy has his way, this is what he does. He's an angel of light. He promises good and peace. What he delivers is death and destruction. He's seeking someone to devour. In Ephesians chapter 2, the first couple of verses, the apostle Paul 
talks about it like this. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked before you knew Jesus Christ. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. The ruler of this world is coming. Satan is on his way with Judas and the soldiers to betray and arrest Jesus Christ. Satan believes that he has won the day at the cross itself when Jesus dies. But what does Jesus tell his disciples at this moment? The ruler of this world is coming, but he has no rule over me. He has no claim on me. Later on in chapter 16, he's going to say, look, in this world, you're going to have trouble. But don't be afraid. I have overcome the world. He has no claim on Jesus. He has no power over Jesus. What looked like victory for Satan was, in fact, defeat. And, in fact, it was the guarantee of his final and eternal defeat under the hand of Jesus Christ. So, friends, we take comfort in this, that what may look like victory for him, the ruler of this world here and now, is at best temporary his defeat is certain, and he has no claim that can overpower the claim of Jesus Christ upon his church. This is where it stands. There is peace there. There is peace there. So I want to think for a moment or two about the peace that Jesus gives. Because it's, he says it's not the kind of peace you're used to thinking about. It's not the kind of peace that you hear in propaganda and media promises and political promises. It's not that kind of peace. It's my kind of peace. So what does it mean to say that the peace of Jesus Christ is not like the peace the world promises? Just a few thoughts on this. This is the kind of thing, friends, that if this grabs you, I would encourage you to just, just roll your way through Scripture with this concept, and it's going to be a rich study for you. But here's at least a few thoughts. How is the peace of Christ not like the peace of the world? First of all, false teachers promise false peace with God. False teachers promise false peace with God. There's a verse... In the middle of the book of Jeremiah, it's actually repeated. It happens twice in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 6, and then I believe it's later on in chapter 8. But listen to this. I love the way the prophet Jeremiah puts this. Jeremiah 6, verse 14. Speaking of false prophets, he says this. They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, where there is no peace. They have healed the wound of my people lightly. You have a spiritual sucking chest wound, and a false prophet puts a Band-Aid over it. He says, just put another shirt over it, and you'll have peace. The wound that you and I have is the sin 
that forever separates me from God. The solution is repentance and mercy. Any teaching that claims to be religious, spiritual, or Christian teaching that does not begin with repentance is false teaching. That does not say the sin that is in your life must be repented of, yet must be mortified in the passage, in the, in the, in the vocabulary of Scripture. It's false teaching. When any teacher misrepresents God or the gospel to you, they are lying about your spiritual condition and they are lying about what fixes it. False teachers promise false peace with God. And in case you haven't been paying attention, there's a lot of this going around right now. A lot of this going around right now. This is one of the reasons why you and I have to be so engaged with the Word of God, with the church of Jesus Christ, that we have to learn what it is to build this dynamic and communicative relationship with the Holy Spirit so that we fall in love with the truth so much that falsehood is obvious. It's transparent. It becomes distasteful to us because falsehood comes with a candy coating. Scripture says he comes as an angel of light. We've said this before. False teachers aren't given a T-shirt that says, I'm a false teacher. You listen to them and you've got to discern it. You've got to learn it. You've got to know it. The false teaching of name it and claim it and prosperity and all of that sort of thing is still amongst us. And it heals the wound of God's people lightly. It promises you peace, but it has not given you the peace of Jesus Christ. There's a rise amongst the evangelical church right now of what's often called religious pluralism. The belief that any sincere religious belief will lead you to eternity with Jesus Christ. You don't need Jesus. You just need to be sincere and you need to be a basically good person. What did Jesus tell us earlier on in John chapter 14? I am the way, the truth, and the life. And most of you will make it to the Father without me. No one comes to the Father except through me. If someone teaches you just have to be a good person based on your standards, cultural standards, whatever, they're healing your wound lightly. They're pretending you're not as sin sick as you really are. And it is a teaching that will lead people to hell. There's another teaching that's on the rise inside of the evangelical church. In fact, very well-known, popular, leading evangelical churches over the last 20, 30, 40 years now are teaching a doctrine called the divine feminine. That God is female. That uh, (laughs) we can walk down just about any doctrinal path that we want. And the only way for women to get to know God is to treat God as a she. And It gets overlapped with pagan teaching and it gets overlapped with our culture's view of human sexuality. 
and it heals the wound of God's people lightly and takes people away from Jesus Christ. And then maybe most obviously, any and all teaching that's inside of the church that tells you any form of sexuality that you choose, you can choose it and still be a follower of Jesus Christ is a false teaching. It heals your wound lightly. And it tells you you can have peace when in reality what you have is enmity with God. False teachers promise false peace with God. And then, in as straightforward a fashion as you might imagine, the world promises false peace. The world promises you and me peace constantly, constantly. From advertisements to political campaigns to educational initiatives, if we do this, if we take, if we, we do this, if we take this path, if we do this, if we fund this initiative, we will finally fix everything and put it together. The world promises false peace. The rising worldview around us right now that is not just in the world outside of the church, but is creeping its way inside of the church, this grandchild of Marxism that you and I are dealing with, is built on false utopian promises and perpetual unrest. Have you noticed this? Our culture this rising worldview on Tuesday nights, we've just been using the term woke as a general term to describe this rising worldview amongst us. It's promising everybody utopia by causing riots in the streets. It promises peace by causing unrest. This is what it does. This is what the writers say they do. This is what this ideology is all about. The protests and riots that we have seen, especially beginning in the summer of 2020 and that continue to this day, they are not designed to solve something or provide paths towards reconciliation. None of them have actually done that. They are designed to increase anxiety and anger. They are designed to keep people off balance perpetually, to create a constant sense of division and anxiety. It all comes with the promise of a perfect world on the other side, but it has no plan and it has no path but disruption and separation and division. It's a Trojan horse, and on the outside it says peace, justice, equity, but it gets inside the gate and you open the doors and all that's inside of it is hate, strife, censorship, and anxiety. That's all that's inside of it. The world promises false peace. But thanks be to God, Jesus gives us a peace that is not like the world's peace. If any worldview comes with a complete lack of true peace, if it works against the true peace of Jesus Christ, it is not of Christ, and Christians cannot have any part of it. I might get myself in trouble for this one, but that's okay. I'll go out the side door. You guys can do whatever you want to. <laughs> Jesus gives us a peace that is based on who he is and what he does, not based on how the world goes. Let's think through that again. 
Jesus offers us a peace that is based on who he is and what he does, not based on how the world goes. So what does it mean to try to find the peace of Jesus Christ? My peace I leave with you. The Holy Spirit will lead you in everything you need to know about following me. Will remind you of what I have told you. He will show you how to find peace Monday morning. How do we do this? How do we find this? It isn't like taking a vitamin. It just sort of happens magically. It's something we have to do. It's something we have to pay attention to. Again, there's a lot that could be said, but here's at least some thoughts for you and me. Let's grab some more scripture. Let's pull it into this concept and make sense of the word of God when it comes to the peace of Jesus Christ. First of all, learn to put your mind on Christ. Learn how to do it. Learn how to remind yourself of the things of Christ. Build patterns into your life that remind you to think of Christ, to pray, to read Scripture, spend time with the people of God, to memorize, to recite, to put your mind on the things of Christ. I love this passage, Isaiah chapter 26, verse 3. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. I don't know about you, but I love that verse of Scripture because I want this. Not because I've found it every moment of my life, but because I want this. So we have to be deliberate. We have to be consistent. Read your Bible at least as much as you take in media, whatever form of media it is. Learn to memorize the Word of God. You don't have to memorize entire books, but memorize the Word of God. Repeat it to yourself. Write it down somewhere. Begin with Isaiah 26, verse 3. Begin with a verse like that and recite it in prayer. Memorize the Word of God. Let times of corporate worship and Bible study become course correction. We walk inside of these doors or we watch or listen to this sermon, not just because it's the habit we're in or we feel like we have to do it, but we enter into the presence of God with the people of God and there's something that's gonna encourage me, that's going to course correct for me, that's gonna bring me back into remembrance of the things of God. It's gonna force me to open the word of God and read what he has to say to me. Let times of corporate worship be a course correction, be an encouragement to us. And in this passage of Scripture in Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9, listen to how this goes. Because the Apostle Paul takes what Jesus says in John 14 seriously. And so the Apostle Paul says, do this, and you're going to find the peace of God. It's really something else. Finally, brothers, Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. 
that sound like cable news or Twitter or Facebook? I'm glad you laughed at that. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Here's what I encourage you to do. I did this with a friend years ago, and it was really a beautiful little exercise. Take that list, write it down somewhere, and begin to fill it out. Begin to think through it. Begin to actually write down things that you can put your mind on instead of the things of this world, the anxieties, the frustrations, the bitterness, the hurt, the loss, the anger, the unforgiveness. Instead of all of that, what if I learned how on a regular basis to think about, meditate on things that are true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, worthy of praise? What if I was able to find people in my life who, like the Apostle Paul, are a few steps further down the road from me and I can follow them? And I can learn from them. I can ask them questions. I can spend time with them. And what I learn from them, what I see in them, then I turn around, go my way, and I practice them. And Paul just says, and the God of peace will be with you. This is the same passage of Scripture where Paul, while he is in prison, he writes these words. He also tells the Philippians, look, I've, I've learned in whatever circumstance I have in life, to be content. I'm chained to a Roman guard. I'm probably going to be beheaded pretty soon. But I've learned how to be content. It's a beautiful, powerful thing that Christ offers us. Another thought. Put the power of Christ and the power of this world in the right order. This is the source of so much of our anxieties and frustrations. It's the source of so many of our sins and our conversations with other people. It's because we are bothered by the power of this world. The power and the priorities of this world seem dominant to us because they press upon us and because our minds are constantly filled with them. We see it, we hear it, we respond to it, react to it. It's just the world that we live in. But we remind ourselves that the power of this world is fleeting and the kingdom of God is eternal. That's why it's so important that you and I belong to a different kingdom. The way the writer of Hebrews puts it, a kingdom that just cannot be shaken. All of the kingdoms of this world are going to fall through the sieve eventually. But the kingdom of God can't be shaken. God never sleeps. God is never out of control. All of human history is making its way to God. Do you belong to that God? So God needs to be bigger in my vision of how the cosmos works, of how my relationships work, how the kingdoms of this world, he needs to be bigger than my vision of anything else. This beautiful passage of Scripture we read often around Christmas, we sing it, which is the reason most of us know pieces of it. Listen to this promise. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, 
The government shall be upon his shoulder. That language is used on purpose. The government, the rule of this world will be placed upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And in this incredible thought of the increase of his rule, of his government, and of peace, there will be no end. I'm leaving my kind of peace with you. And what does Isaiah say? Of the increase of the rule of the Prince of Peace will never end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it, here it is with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Not only does he have the power to do it, he wants to do it. He will do it. So put the power of Christ and the power of this world in their correct order. <laughs> and then this thought. Treat all of your anxiety and confusion with prayer and be thankful. Treat all of your anxiety and confusion with prayer and be thankful. Are you worried about what may happen tomorrow? Are you worried about what may happen next year? Are you worried about what may happen in the comings and goings of human dealings? Pray and express thanksgiving to God. We read from Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. Here's verses 6 and 7. Do not be anxious about anything. What did Jesus say? Let not your hearts be troubled. Don't let them be afraid. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard, will protect your heart and mind in Jesus Christ. I'm leaving you my peace, Jesus says. Friends, this is not judgment. If you don't feel this, if you can't figure this out, if you don't know what this is like, if you reflect upon your life and you think, I've got none of this, none of this is judgment. All of this is offer. All of this is invitation. All of this is meditation upon the promise of Jesus Christ. He leaves you and me his peace. None of us have perfectly attained this, but I want this. I need this. And if you belong to Jesus Christ, he is offering it to you and to me this morning. We ask for it, we work for it, and we anticipate the peace of Christ in our lives. Let's pray.